when he gave an award to a mother whose son had just been killed the day before by a Russian sniper and she stood there and he pinned the medal on her and the tears just flowed down her face. It was very moving. It was, you know, it's, you know, children can get over it, wives can get over it, husbands can get over it, but mothers never get over it. And we're back, Sam, and we're talking about a country in your area of expertise. That's right, Sinclair. We're talking about Ukraine. That's Ukraine to non-Ukrainian speakers. So uh, before we get started, let's take a second to remind our listeners that Global is a monthly podcast featuring one country per episode. We deliver an on-the-ground look at our rapidly changing world. Uh, Episode 7 is on Ukraine. So Sinclair, Ukraine a country with an ancient history and modern European aspirations currently undergoing a political transformation. Oh, say that three times fast. Uh, That was a a prepared statement. (laughs) Um, But could you give us some some fast facts about Ukraine? Absolutely. So Ukraine is the second largest European country after Russia, of course. It borders Moldova, Romania, Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, Belarus, Russia, and the Black Sea and it's located in Eastern Europe. It has a population of about 45 million, about the size of Argentina. And in Ukraine, there are a mixture of people who speak Russian and Ukrainian and people who are ethnic Ukrainian and ethnic Russian. Two thirds of Ukraine's citizens are ethnic Ukrainians whose first language is Ukrainian. And then one sixth are ethnic Ukrainians who speak Russian. Last sixth are ethnic Russians who live primarily in the east and south near the Russian border. Prior to the 20th century, Ukrainian territories were controlled at different times by Russia, Poland, Lithuania, the Mongols, and Cossacks, and other people. Another interesting fact is that Ukraine was the host of the Yalta Conference in 1945. That's the conference where Churchill, Stalin, and Roosevelt met to discuss the organization of post-war Europe. Ukraine's government is a semi-presidential republic. The English-speaking world commonly referred to Ukraine as the Ukraine until its independence in 1991. And then the West, after that, gradually dropped the definite article. In 1993, the Ukrainian government requested the country be called just Ukraine. I bet you don't know the connection between McDonald's and Ukraine. Uh, not off the top of my head, no. So the McDonald's that's located next to the main train station in Kiev, which is Ukraine's capital, is claimed to be the third busiest in the world. Why do, why do Ukrainians love McDonald's so much? Well, I mean, why does anybody love McDonald's? Uh, it's an existential question. That's a good question. Yeah. I know, I know you like McDonald's. I, I, well, <laughs> no comments. No comments. Um, finally, um, borscht is a soup made of beetroot, and it's the national dish of Ukraine. Borscht is excellent. You can't get borscht at McDonald's, though, from what I... Well, at least not in the United States. So, Sinclair, uh, who are our guests today? We have IRI's chairman, Senator John McCain. The second sitting senator we've had on this show. Episode one was lucky enough to... uh, to feature Senator uh, Lindsey Graham to talk about Russia. That's right. And we also have the Ukrainian member of parliament, Hannah Hopko. Hannah Hopko. Hannah Hopko. Hannah Hopko is very impressive. Very impressive. She's the head of the Ukrainian Parliamentary Foreign Affairs Committee and a member of the Executive Committee of Reforms of the National Council of Reforms and the Anti-Corruption Action Center. 
And uh, she's only 35. Wow, makes me feel like I've accomplished nothing in life. Yeah, I'm massively underachieving <laughs> compared to her. Yeah. yeah. And finally, we've got Steve Nix, who is IRI's director of Eurasia. Steve, who I must disclose is, is my boss at IRI, uh, has a great background. Uh, Steve lived in Kiev, uh, Ukraine, for more than three years. During that time, he served as a outside legal counsel for the uh, Committee on Legal Refor- Reform in the Ukrainian Parliament. He also assisted in the drafting of crucial reform legislation in Ukraine, including the Constitution, uh, the presidential and parliamentary election laws, and the law on constitutional courts. Again, a very accomplished person, and he really knows a lot about the country. Um, He's famous for saying Ukrainian phrases all the the time in the office, Um, and he's going to give us an on-the-ground look. Yes, for sure. Uh, Now, for for this podcast, we will mostly be talking about the history of Ukraine after uh, an event known as Euromaidan. Um, Because of that, I want to give you all what I like to call Sam's Slow Facts. Uh, the territory of Ukraine was inhabited by Neanderthals for at least 44 Okay, thousand. let's not go that far back. Okay. Well, fast-forwarding from Neanderthals, Ukraine officially declared itself an independent state on August 24th, 1991. On December 1st of that year, voters approved a referendum formalizing independence from the Soviet Union. Over 90% of Ukrainian citizens voted for independence, with uh, majorities in every region, including 56% in Crimea. That was the same election where Ukraine voted for the first president and elected uh, Leonid Kravchuk. The presidency of the second president of Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, uh, who was there from 1994 to 2005, was surrounded by numerous corruption scandals and and, uh, uh, restriction in media freedoms, unfortunately. Uh, In 2004, Kuchma announced that he would not be running for re-election. The two major candidates emerging uh, in the 2004 presidential election were Viktor Yanukovych, uh, the incumbent prime minister, who was supported overtly by the Russian Federation, uh, who preferred closer ties with Russia, uh, and the main opposition candidate, Viktor Yushchenko, who called for Ukraine to turn its attention westward and aim to uh, eventually join EU. And enter the Orange Revolution. Right. The Orange Revolution was a series of protests that uh, took place in Ukraine from late November 2004 to January 2005 in the immediate aftermath of the runoff of the 2004 uh, presidential election, uh, which was surrounded by massive corruption scandals. The protests were prompted by reports, essentially, from from several domestic and foreign election monitors, uh, as well as widespread public perception that the results of the runoff vote between those two leading candidates, Yushchenko and Yanukovych, were rigged by the authorities in favor of the latter. The nationwide protests only stopped when the results of the original runoff were annulled and a revote was ordered by Ukraine's Supreme Court. Under intense scrutiny from domestic and international observers, the second runoff was declared to be fair and free. The final results showed a clear victory for Yushchenko, who received about 52% of the vote compared to Yanukovych's 44%. Uh, Yushchenko was declared the official winner. Well, now that we have that history, let's talk to our guests. So, Steve, we're starting with the Maidan. What is the Maidan and why did it happen? Well, the Maidan, or as it's known now as the Revolution of Dignity, uh, began mainly to uh, refute President Yanukovych's decision not to enter into the association agreement with the European Union. The Ukrainian people felt very strongly that they are a European people and their place is in Europe, their future lies in Europe, And they made that claim 
on the streets of Kiev and many other cities, but primarily and symbolically the Maidan is important because Ukrainian people had had enough of corruption. Mm -hmm. They want a European way of life. They want to live in a European country. And they made that very, very clear on the Maidan. Mm. Hannah, you were right in the middle of, of the Maidan. Uh, what led up to the Euromaidan uh, or, or the Revolution of Dignity, as it's also known? Uh, there were several reasons leading to Euromaidan during Yanukovych presidency. Uh, the first one was huge-scale corruption and monopolization of economic activities by uh, Yanukovych family and his surrounding. Uh, this was uh, accompanied by increase in countries' external debt and higher and higher social spendings, uh, which were not backed by economic growth. Of course, middle class found no possibilities to develop, and uh, people uh, understood that the country is being privatized by few people with no future for, uh, with no chance for future development. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the decision of Yanukovych uh, uh, to reject signing the association agreement with the European Union was <clears throat> a trigger that uh, uh, started the revolution of dignity. Sure. Because turning away from the course of European integration as a final uh, shot, which along with um, other reasons like corruptions, has led to the revolution of dignity, so-called Euromaidan, uh, where people stood for our freedom, dignity, human rights, and also preserving national identity and our course of uh, European integration. This was at the beginning, before the, the moment when the students were beaten by a special police uh, officer, uh, Berkut, so-called Berkut, <clears throat> and then from uh, our protection of our Euro integration uh, direction, our in uh, mood, we uh, stood up for our um, protection of our rights, dignity, and uh, the future of Ukraine. And also, uh, this was really important for us uh, uh, not to allow Yanukovych and his team to um, uh, continue this monopoly on strategic spheres and also Russian influence uh, under the Ukraine's uh, uh, economy, defense, intelligence, uh, education policy, everything that helped Putin to um, um, make Ukraine a part of his Euro-Asian uh, Euro, um, uh, empire ambition. <clears throat> so for us, it was really important to uh, fight for the independence of Ukraine from Russian influence, from um, uh, different attempts to make Ukraine a part of custom union. This is the economic union of uh, uh, Russian Federation or, or Putin. And uh, so this this is why it was really like this is the events leading up to Ramadan. So you mentioned former President Viktor Yanukovych. Uh, Steve, what do we need to know about him? Sure. Well, to fully describe his regime before that, it wasn't just the vote against uh, being part of the European Union. Uh, you, corruption has continuously been a problem in Ukraine, and Yanukovych and his government was extremely corrupt. 
he and his family were pocketing money, uh, robbing the treasury, downgrading the military uh, so that it couldn't defend itself uh, when the time came. Uh, so yes, his, his uh, epitaph as president will read uh, perhaps the most corrupt elected official uh, in the history of Ukraine. Wow. Senator McCain, what sort of effect did Yanukovych's leadership, specifically with regard to Vladimir Putin, have on Ukraine? Well, I think it was pretty obvious that the previous president was uh, just a stooge of Vladimir Putin's. I mean, he did everything he told him to do. He acquiesced to the uh, transition <laughs> of Crimea from sovereign Ukrainian soil, which they had agreed to in return for uh, getting rid of their nuclear weapons, and the Russians just moved in. And of course, then they moved into eastern Ukraine and still are now continuing sporadically uh, the, the conflict. And they're killing Ukrainians every single day. Mm. Hanna, you were in Kiev uh, during the Maidan. What was your personal experience with the Revolution of Dignity? I remember this uh, moment in November 2013 because exactly at the day when uh, Maidan started, when uh, one of the activists at that time, journalist uh, Mustafa, uh, made his call on Facebook and other activists that we have to start the protest against Yanukovych's decision, I was sitting in Opera House because it was uh, 80th anniversary of Holodomor. This is an important part of Ukrainian history uh, that Hanna just referenced. The Holodomor, literally translated from Ukrainian, means death by hunger. Uh, it was a man-made famine uh, resulting from Stalin's policies towards Ukraine uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, lasted from 1932 to 1933 and killed uh, an estimated 7 to 10 million people. Uh, since 2006, the Holodomor has been recognized by Ukraine and 15 other countries as a genocide of the Ukrainian people carried out by the Soviet government. Back to Hannah. The same Holodomor, this is artificial hunger, famine organized by Stalin. Uh, 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 when more than uh, 5 million of Ukrainians died in 1932-1933 because of lack of uh, food. This was uh, uh, famine, famine, or how is it in English? Famine, yes. <clears throat> and uh, in Opera House, when uh, MPs from Australia, uh, from different uh, in, uh, countries like Canada, United States, Ukrainian people were sitting in Opera commemorating uh, the victims of artificial famine organized by Stalin regime. So it was very like symbolic when uh, after the Opera House uh, commemoration events, I went exactly to Maidan and joined to uh, activists in our uh, call to Yanukovych not uh, to follow the Kremlin's, uh, uh, Kremlin's uh, directions just and to sign the association agreement. It was clear that Zinukovych will not sign. And we started this protest. And then it was like uh, Stalin regime and Yanukovych, and Yanukovych uh, regime in Ukraine and Putin who is trying to make Ukraine a part of his 
empire by uh, not allowing us uh, to choose to, to choose our euro integration direction. So it just started after a call to action following a social media post. Was there any sort of central leadership structure? Euromaidan movement had no single leadership. There were councils where there were representatives from various uh, various uh, spheres of uh, presentations like business community, NGO activists, uh, uh, journalists, uh, uh, people from different regions, culture, education, religious organizations. And this is really important because all these, um, all the activists, all the leaders from different uh, communities, uh, they understood at that time that the question of existence of Ukraine as a free and prosperous state was at stake. And um, this was, uh, it was people's freedom and people's dignity at stake. It is, uh, and this is why Dignity Revolution, Euromaidan, united many activists that were concerned uh, by the, uh, about the future. So, and it's really important that there were representatives of small and medium-sized uh, business, uh, school and university teachers, students. There are like um, a group of journalists, uh, activists uh, like uh, Igor Lutsenko, uh, besides uh, Mustafa Nahim, besides Yehor uh, uh, Sobolev, who is now the head of Anti-Corruption Committee, Igor Lutsenko, who is also a member of Anti-Corruption Committee in the Parliament, uh, uh, Victoria Sumar, uh, and many others. So this is uh, like the activists started and then the politicians represented at that time, the parliament from op- uh, like from so-called opposition, they joined to this uh, movement. Senator McCain, you've been a very active voice on Ukraine, and you've been there for critical moments in its recent history. Uh, could you tell us about your time at Euromaidan and, and Mariupol last Christmas? Well, I went to uh, Maidan, and uh, the people were was jammed with several hundred thousand people. It was cold. They had set up soup kitchens kind of thing where they could uh, feed them. Uh, it was remarkable. The, the, the enthusiasm was just uh, palpable. And it was people who wanted to live the kind of life that we take for granted. And it was wonderful. And I was really flattered when they uh, saw who I was. Steve, what were the immediate political changes in Ukraine resulting from Maidan. After the Maidan, an interim government was established, but shortly thereafter, presidential elections were held, followed by parliamentary elections. And a pro-EU president, Petro Poroshenko, was elected president during the presidential elections. And the subsequent parliamentary elections, uh, the result was a very, very pro-EU majority was elected. And these elections were significant for a number of reasons. Uh, for the first time, uh, candidates won significant levels of support both in East and Western Ukraine, whereas historically, uh, campaigns, candidates, and parties had been split along East and West geographical lines. And President Poroshenko uh, won a plurality of votes in virtually every oblast in Ukraine. That had never happened before in a presidential election. So it showed strong national support across these regional lines. Sure. 
How did this sit with Putin? Was there any response? After the Maidan and the installation of a provisional government, uh, the reaction of, uh, of Russia and Putin was to decry these events as anti-democratic. In fact, the terms they were using to describe the new government were very nasty, uh, using terms like fascist, uh, Nazi, very, very crude and incorrect terms. But that's the way that Russia tried to describe uh, the events on the Maidan. Russia had always hoped to keep Ukraine under its orbit, and the move to Europe takes Ukraine away from Russia and moves it squarely towards Europe, something that President Putin uh, did not want and was not going to accept. Consequently, a few months after the Maidan, uh, two events, uh, the invasion of Crimea and the invasion of eastern Ukraine by Russian military forces. This was disguised by what's known as Little Green Mem. These were Russian military sent there without insignia on their uniforms, basically to take control over Ukraine sovereign territory. So there was an invasion uh, followed by strong military force. Uh, Russian regular troops followed and they recruited a number of mercenaries and also local recruits from the Donbass to join forces and to take over large amounts of the Donbass area of Ukraine. Similarly, in Crimea, the Russians established a military occupation of the capital, Simferopol, and that spread throughout the rest of the Crimean Peninsula. And that was followed on March 18, 2014, by a so-called referendum, uh, which the Russian government proclaimed as a huge victory uh, because they claimed that the majority of people on the Crimean Peninsula voted in the referendum to join Russia. IRI had a program in Crimea with a, an office in uh, Simferopol. Uh, one of the last things we did before the program in, ended, uh, which was would have been 2013, we did a poll of Crimea. And we asked citizens, what should the status of Crimea be? Uh, should it be uh, part of Ukraine with autonomy? Uh, should it be an autonomous completely autonomous, or should it be part of Russia? The vast majority of Ukrainians, or I should say Crimean residents, said in our survey uh, that, they, that you, Crimea should remain a part of Ukraine with some autonomy. Uh, very few, it was in single digits, uh, wanted it to be part of Russia. And it's completely the opposite of the election results of the so-called referendum on Crimea, right. really turned the results on its head. Uh, this poll was done less than a year before the annexation of Crimea, and I'm sorry, uh, polling results don't change that rapidly. So from our standpoint, we have evidence uh, that proves what we all think, that the vote on the referendum on Crimea was an electoral farce engineered by the Russian Federation. Steve, could you remark a little bit on the the split uh, Ukrainian identity between Eastern and Western Ukraine? So very distinct Western influences on European influences on the Western half of Ukraine and uh, a very uh, Russian style influence which goes to language, culture, history, 
but that is the situation. Ukraine uh, had gone for centuries without being a truly unified country, its component parts of West and East being united. So, Hanna, you grew up in Ukraine. What sort of identity divide did you see in your country? And has that changed over time? I'm from Western Ukraine, but uh, 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 I love, uh, and I cannot say that I'm from Western Ukraine, and this is my favorite part of Ukraine. I love all parts of Ukraine, and I love visit to eastern part of Ukraine, where now we see a revival of the country, when people are suffering from Russian aggression, from fightings every day in the conflict line. But their patriotic spirit every time inspire me in Donbass, even not in Kiev or in Western Ukraine. Because people there on the front fighting for our independence and deterring Russian aggression. There is no this uh, split of Western and Eastern part of Ukraine or North or Southern of Ukraine. Ukrainians are united uh, and dignity revolution and Russian aggression. This challenges became an opportunities and really like a factor that helped Ukrainians to feel that they belong to one nation. And we are united by one idea, the peace in Ukraine and also the economic uh, growth of Ukraine. So Senator McCain, is there something you learned through your personal experiences and relationships in Ukraine that you'd want our listeners to know? There's a young woman, Reshlana is her name. She's a great singer. She was there 24-7. She was a major entertainment. Uh, She was everything that I believe that freedom and independence stand for. And so if there's a, to me, when I think of the Maidan, I think of her. We went down to Mariupol for New Year's Eve. We. We flew down from Kiev with the president and several of his generals, and we went to a couple of different places, including one where he gave out some awards on New Year's Eve. It was very cold, it was very touching, it was very uh, moving. Uh, I had had several meetings with other members of the military, but that, of course, was a highlight when he gave an award to a mother whose son had just been killed the day before by a Russian sniper. And she stood there and he pinned the medal on her and the tears just flowed down her face. It was very moving. It was, you know, it's, you know, children can get over it, wives can get over it, husbands can get over it, but mothers never get over it. I went to Mariupol with, earlier, with, uh, with Senator Graham and uh, and a couple others, and uh, we went to one of these volunteer battalions. They had lost three people a day before, and I understand three the day after, usually through Russian snipers. And then we went to Mariupol and we spoke to a crowd there, as I mentioned, a couple hundred thousand who were living there permanently. Mm. Steve, I know IRI does a lot of polling in Ukraine. Uh, what uh, what are identified as the two main political issues in Ukraine right now? Well, again, the IRI data tells us that the two main issues uh, in the country today remain the war in Donbass and corruption. Those are the two main points. Obviously, there are subtenets of, of uh, that that go to the economy and jobs. 
because Ukraine has undergone tremendous economic uh, suffering as a result of the war. Again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, an entire industry has been destroyed. Uh, and roughly 25 percent of, of Ukraine's GDP emanates from or emanated from the Donbass. That's a huge portion of the economy to lose in the course of a war. So uh, the war has, has caused great hardship economically. Uh, there are uh, close to 2 million displaced persons, 10,000 dead as a result of this war. So it's impacted the economy. It's impacted uh, uh, many, many um, industries and obviously the lives of citizens uh, who are living in different places in Ukraine temporarily unless, I'm sorry, until uh, a resolution can, uh, can take place in the Donbass and they can return peacefully to their homes. So lots of devastation to the economy. Uh, the result is the, the value of the hryvnia has dropped tremendously. Uh, there's been tremendous inflation. Uh, really difficult times for ordinary Ukrainian citizens. But I would say, again, the fact that they're suffering so much economically, it's important to know, in their minds, the greatest challenge the country faces is the war in the Donbass. And how does that information, uh, how will that information play in the upcoming 2019 elections? The 2019 parliamentary elections will be pivotal for Ukraine. Uh, every time Ukraine has a national election, we say here at IRI that this is the most important election ever in Ukraine. And every time we say that, we're correct. Uh, these are pivotal for different reasons. Uh, Ukraine has established itself as a fledgling democracy and a legitimate uh, contender, aspirant for EU membership. And to continue that track uh, is the goal of the Ukrainian people. Uh, I suspect that these elections will be very competitive. There are quite a few uh, political parties in Ukraine that are receiving support. Uh, so there'll be a number of parties that will make it into parliament. Uh, our polling indicates that right now, if the elections were held today, uh, a total of seven political parties will be elected to parliament. Importantly, five of those are very, very pro-EU, pro-reform, and very much uh, want to complete Ukraine's transformation under the association agreement with the European Union. Senator McCain, IRI polling has shown that corruption and resolving the conflict are the two biggest issues for Ukrainian citizens. When you talk to Ukrainians, what do you hear from them are Ukraine's biggest challenges? Well, there's still corruption. There has been some improvements. There have some, been some people who were thrown in jail, but there is still a very significant segment of these people who took over major industries uh, from when the Russians uh, left, and they're still there. Now, some of them have been removed, so that's good, but there's still a significant problem with these people who control large segments of their economy. Success in economic and democratic transformation in these uh, countries uh, clearly show to us that post-Soviet legacy can and must be rooted out and that EU integration leads to development and pros uh, prosperity of the population. And also NATO membership is an instrument of protection from um, Russian hybrid 
uh, attacks, cyber attacks. So this is really important. Um, uh, just as we expect that Ukraine will serve as an example and success case for Russian citizens in, the, in its future transformation. And this is what Putin is afraid at most. Successful Ukraine is a nightmare for Mr. Putin. And this is really important also for the whole post-Soviet space for other countries like Armenia, uh, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Moldova, Belarus. It's really very important to show that uh, peaceful transformation of Ukraine, even if it take times, uh, take more time than everybody uh, expected, but it's possible and the model of transformation in Ukraine, because compared to Lithuania and Poland, Ukraine is a, a close neighbor to Russia Federation. And uh, um, even de decommunization and uh, Russian, Ruski Mir, Russian, uh, what's in, in, in English, uh, Ruski Mir, Russian world and Russian attempts to build Navarossia, and even this last uh, example, remember when Mr. Putin, during his visit to France uh, and he, he, during his meeting with Mr. Macron, he told that uh, um, Anna Yaroslavna, the Queen of France, she is from Russia. However, she used to be the daughter of Kiev, uh, um, uh, Kiev uh, leader Yaroslav Weiss, and actually. Putin, Putin is trying to steal Ukrainian history, to grab our history, because without Ukraine, uh, Ukraine, we are young, uh, democratic uh, nation, but very, with very old uh, history, more than 1,000 years of history. And Putin needs to grab our history and based on our history to build his Euro-Asian empire. This is what this is the identity war. And this is the fight, the struggle for the for the uh, uh, our place in future history. So this is why it's really important for Ukraine to learn the successful experience from Poland and Lithuania. Okay, Senator McCain, can you put this into perspective for our listeners? How does an everyday American relate to Ukraine? We have to go back to Ronald Reagan, who said, "Mr. Brezhnev, take down this wall." We have to be like Ronald Reagan, who mentioned Nathan Shransky, who was in the Gulag. Uh, we have to stand up for the human rights that the United States of America has always stood for. And I'm very worried that this administration is not making that part of it. It doesn't have to be the predominant part, but it has to be part of our effort for these people to achieve independence and freedom. That's what. IRI was all about, to help people get a democracy where they all have an opportunity. Unfortunately, in the last couple of years, the tide, unfortunately, has been flowing in the other direction. I think historians will look back at the Reagan administration as not only the person who won the Cold War, but the person who stood up for basic human rights for decency, for freedom of the press, for all of the things that the United States stand for. Countries come and go. They rise and they fall. And sometime 100 years from now, they'll be looking back 
at the Reagan administration and saying, that's what we want the world to be like. Sinclair, what are the big three takeaways at the conclusion of this podcast that our listeners need to know? So I think the first one is that Russia broke international law when it annexed Crimea, and it continues to break it by occupying eastern Ukraine. In fact, they're breaking a treaty that they made themselves when they gave Crimea to the to Ukraine. Mm. You're referencing the Budapest mem- Memorandum, I believe. Yeah. Yes. Um, I would say that the second second takeaway uh, is that though there are historical differences between eastern and, and western Ukraine, there the country is unified in its desire to see Ukraine Ukraine's future be free, fair, and most importantly, a part of Europe. Yeah, and I think Ukrainians really see the path to prosperity as running through Europe. Um, and for me, the third takeaway is that the political goals and will embodied in the Euromaidan were reflected in Ukraine's recent elections and continue to be the driving force behind ongoing political reforms. Yes, the major legislative undertakings focused on decentralization and anti-corruption going on right now reflect the spirit of Euromaidan transferred from the street to the legislature. And isn't that beautiful? Yeah. And a very special thank you to Senator John McCain. Thank you to Hannah Hopko, who joined us via Skype from Ukraine. And, of course, IRI's own Steve Nix. Our theme was composed by Alex Hollinghead. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If there's a country that you'd uh, like to learn more about, leave a comment in our review section. And while you're there, rate our podcast and let us know what you think. And IRI works in over 80 countries worldwide. And if you'd like to learn more, please go to IRI.org or follow us on Twitter at IRI Global. Until next time. So if people are still listening, Sinclair, let's give them a hint about the next episode. This country won its independence in 1963 and has been a republic since 1964. If you know the answer, uh, send us a tweet at IRI Global.